everybody and welcome back to Mysteries, Murders, Monsters, and Your Mom. I'm Julie. I'm Nicole. And we are the moms that are going to read you some stories in this podcast. Welcome back. Thanks for all the listens that we got already. It's very exciting. Um, We're really looking forward to keeping this going. And make sure you tell all of your friends, please. Recommend the podcast. Send the podcast. Give us five-star reviews. Even if you on don't Apple. like us. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're just gonna take a quick break to do our sponsor ad, FYI. So if you don't want to listen to it, just fast forward, but we're still gonna play it. And we'll be right back. Hey fellow moms and listeners, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Well, Nicole and I are here to tell you how. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make pod- to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hi, everybody. All right, so I'm going to get started today, and I'm going to tell you the um, very interesting story, true crime story about Girly Chu Hassenkoft. Love that name. <sighs> Me too. Also, I love it so much. I'm drinking wine today. And I am drinking Field Study by Trogues. I've been enjoying it a lot this summer. It's excellent. If you're an IPA fan, go check it out. All right. So I first heard about this case on Crime Junkies, which is my go-to absolute favorite true crime podcast. They are the best. If you are not listening to them, you should be. Um, and I read so much information about this case, but I am going to use the timeline that Crime Junkies used because it made the most sense. Um, as you'll see as we go through this, there's a lot of crazy information, so fitting it in the right spot so nobody's confused, um, you know, is super important. I also decided that this was perfect for us because it is a story that has mystery, murder, Monsters and your mom all rolled into Shut one. Up. Nope, really? really? Oh, I'm excited. This is going to be awesome. All right. So, <laughs> Girly Chu was born on August 27, 1963, in Malaysia. She came to the U.S. for a visit, went to SeaWorld, and met this guy named Diazin Hassenkoft. They fell in love and got married in 1993. So, they lived in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And in January of 1999, so not that many years later, Gurley moved out of their residence, moved into an apartment at the 8400 block of Spain Road, and took a, took a job at a bank. She had hired an attorney and initiated divorce proceedings shortly after that. So we'll jump back to their divorce in a minute. It is really important to this case. Um, But let's skip ahead to September of 1999. So September 9th, 1999 was a pretty normal day. Girlie went to her job, came home, and... 9999. Right? What? Sorry. That's crazy. (laughs) So the next morning at her job at Bank of America, Girlie's coworkers became immediately concerned when she didn't show up for work by 8 a.m. 
which any other circumstance, <laughs> right? My, if anybody shows up on time, it's pretty much awesome where I work. So anyway. <laughs> I think this is back when but, people had work ethic. Right? So this is not like her at all, right? She's an excellent employee. Um, but to add to their concern, Gurley's best friend Ernie is calling the bank asking where she is, if she's come to work. And they're all kind of like, no, she hasn't come to work. Um, so with all this information in hand, one of her coworkers actually volunteers to go to her apartment and check for her. So that person goes to the apartment and her boss notifies police all by 8, 10 a.m., which is Jesus. crazy, right? Yeah. Now, there's honest. another reason that everybody was so concerned. Um, her ex-husband, Dyson, um, had been threatening her. He had been leaving her threatening messages. He told her he would kill her. She had already told her coworkers if she didn't come to work, like, you know, uh, yeah. like something happened. It's him. Yeah. If anything happens to me, it's Dyson. Like it's you know. So of course the police aren't going to come right away because you know I mean, <laughs> can you imagine if you were ten minutes late for work and then called the police and said there's a missing person? You know, <laughs> I mean, just think from their end, they're going, okay, you people are crazy. Call us back after right? seven days when there's no so possible way we they, can find. They them. don't get anywhere the first call. But the guy that left to go to the apartment goes and finds the super, and they go, and they find her car in the parking lot, and the door's locked. So the super lets him in, and there's really, like, nothing out of place, but she's not there. Mm -hmm. And there are some wet stains on the carpet. So he calls back to the bank, you know, the whole thing, and the bank manager calls again and just lays into them about all of the domestic violence issues that she's had with Dyson and how he's threatening her. So finally, the police actually agree to go check it out. So they go to the apartment. <laughs> this is kind of crazy. So they go to the apartment and um, they didn't go in the apartment. They just talked to the super. So they talked to the super and he says, you know, there was a like, there didn't seem to be a struggle. Everything seemed in place. But he also goes into the whole thing about her ex-husband, about how she was basically at this apartment in hiding from uh, him. You know, she yeah. was escaping her situation. So the officer thinks the best thing he can do at this point is to go to Dyson's house. So he does. He gets there and finds that the house has the front door wide open and is completely empty. And I mean empty, like cleared out. No furniture, no nothing. It's empty. So they start talking to neighbors, and a neighbor tells them that he a moving truck came a couple of days ago, and he told the neighbors that he was going to El Paso, for Texas, for cancer treatment and had just, you know, up and left. So, wow. so it's kind of important at this point because obviously the officers looked – you know, called this in, and there is some information, and the police have had Dyson on their radar for a little bit at this point. Um, because of all the domestic violence complaints that Gurley has, you know, Violent. filed against him. And in fact, um, he was getting ready to stand trial for violating one of the restraining orders. Like, that was coming. Um. So, um, he, the officer then goes back to her apartment, and goes inside, and with the trained eye of you know, a police officer immediately knows that those wet spots are blood stains, right? You know, and the whole place smells like bleach, and it's pretty clear that something horrible happened. So it wasn't like just big red spots on a carpet. It was no, like, it was try, it was cleaned. Like it, somebody had uh, tried to clean it, but between the, it. you know the stain that was there and the you know the bleach smell, and they come in with the luminol, and basically the place lights up. 
Like, wow. it's just something happened in yeah. this apartment. It is pretty clear at this point. So, um, not long after that, on the same day, pretty much, about 120 miles away along Highway 60 um, in Belen, New Mexico, a highway worker finds this tarp off the side of the road up an embankment. And he goes to inspect it because he wants to move it because if it blows onto the highway, it would be dangerous. Yeah. Um, and when he gets to the tarp, um, you know, he thinks it's going to be like deer or something. It's deer season, hunting season. Um, in fact, what he finds um, is blood splattered pink and orange shorts, a green and white blouse, and green panties. And they're all wrapped in this blood-stained gray tarp, right? And there's also some duct tape with strands of hair in it. So he immediately knows something's crazy. So he yeah. actually, which is crazy, packs it up, sends it back to the police. Um, so they have all of this within the first day. So they're pretty sure that something yeah. really bad has happened to Gurley. So um, side note, when you're driving, especially down like Route 15, mm-hmm. do you ever like look at things that are on the side of the road and you think, oh my God, what is that? What if that's a person? Yes, I do all the like, time. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I listen to so much true crime and I read so much true crime that of course I think that. I'm my like, brain is like always in this, what is that? Yeah, like why is that bad? there? What is that there? suspicious thing over there? Is that a shoe? What's that? What's <laughs> Side that? note story on our way home from the beach. <laughs> Um, somebody's luggage must have come off the top of their car, you oh, know, no. those things. Yeah. And there was this state trooper standing there. It was in Delaware and he's just kicking the clothes off the road and he looks so annoyed. I was like, you know, you could have really just picked them up. It right. probably would have taken longer, but traffic's backed up for like 10 miles while he's like clearing the road. Just because So anyway, safety is safety right. important. But that's funny. I'm glad I'm not the only one that's always like, what's that? What's that? What's that car doing there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No. Okay, so, no, so police start asking questions, right? They're talking to the neighbors. They've already talked to one neighbor. So they start asking neighbors questions. And they do get this one report that's kind of interesting. So the night that Gurley disappeared, um, Dyson sped into his driveway that night, and the neighbor reported that his face and neck were covered in black grease paint, and he appeared to be wearing forest green or a camouflage print shirt. Wow. (laughs) That's pretty crazy. All right, so four days into the investigation, this one moves pretty quickly. Um, the police get three different reports of people receiving harassing phone calls from none other than Dyson. What? One, two is a d- divorce attorney, which, you know, that seems normal. <laughs> one is actually to the neighbor who reported that he came into his driveway. That Like, uh. one is actually to that neighbor, and the neighbor's kind of spooked because, like, how do they know that I told you this? Yeah. Anyway. And the next one is to an employee at an adoption agency that Dyson had just used to give up his son, Dimitri, for oh, adoption. No. Oh, that's so sad. we need to talk about this for a second. Before, it, it is sad, but we need to talk about it. So, um, about three years before that, because Dimitri was about three when this happened, Dyson comes home from a business trip with a month-old baby boy. What? Yeah, for real. He says that he was orphaned by people he knew in Mexico, and that him and Gurley are just going to take this baby in. And they had been trying to have kids, and things weren't going so well. And they hadn't talked about adoption or anything, but Gurley really wanted to be a mom. So she, you know, kind of, they did it. So, um, but then after they split up, uh, he wanted to put the, the baby up for adoption. And Gurley signed off um, on it. She signed over. But she was, remember, in this crazy domestic violence situation. And I think at this point she she loved Dimitri and thought he was 
you know, thought of him as her son, but she really didn't feel like she had a lot of options at this point. Right. And but did he, did he steal that baby though? We'll, we'll get to that. Okay. Because <laughs> like, that's fucking suspicious. If we will get to ever. that. We will get to that as okay. we dive deeper into Dyson and the craziness that okay. is this person. Okay. Okay. Sorry. So the woman he called to harass was named Vonda. And I love that name. Me too. And <laughs> she works at the, the adoption agency and She'd already started to have some concerns about Dyson because um, he came in and said that he wanted to put his son up for adoption because he was the only one involved in his son's life, which wasn't true, and that yeah. he was dying of leukemia. So she's like, okay, you know, that makes sense. So they go through all the steps, and one of the steps is a medical exam. Well, the medical exam comes back, and not only does he not have leukemia, which, you know, uh, he's also Dimitri's father. And no one had known that at this point. He had always just said that he was an orphan child that he took in. On a business trip, someone right, randomly exactly. handed him a baby and said, um, please take him. So, wait, it gets weirder. So she asks him, where's the mom? Right? Because yeah. it's definitely not girly. They know that, right? So who who's the mom? He says, Dimitri doesn't have a mom. Dimitri was grown in a lab from harvested eggs. Wow. I know. Okay. Which, so this woman okay. is already like, all right, that's not true. That's not happening. There's something wrong with this guy. Like, I really, you know, so she's already suspect. And I don't know, this part's really weird. And I did hear it on Crime Junkies, but I also read about it in another report. So apparently, she was out to dinner with her husband and was basically talking about how messed up this whole case was because right. she was really concerned. And I guess Dyson was at the same restaurant and overheard her what? or something or someone overheard her and somehow, I don't know if it was, they say it was him, but like right. someone overheard and got back to Dyson that this was, you know, going on. What and so that's why he was calling to yell at her basically. Okay. But the good thing about all these crazy phone calls is they were able to trace, they were able to trace them because they got reported right away. Right. So Dyson is not in El Paso. He is in Charleston, South Carolina with his new fiance. My God, how is he engaged already? Like, was this guy hot? I mean, I know. Like, what? And she's not the only one. There's girlfriends and fiancés all over the place, it turns out. Oh my God. So we can dive into that. Okay. I'm just like, is he, is he hot? Like... He's either hot, he pretends to have money, or he's just really good in bed. Either well, way. I don't think I'd get engaged with somebody just because they were, like, good in bed. I'm like, oof. Anyway. <laughs> That's nothing to do with it. Okay. <laughs> okay, so he gets arrested. Um, they arrested him on charges of harassment across state lines or something like that, and he gets brought back to Albuquerque. Um, so they check out his apartment that he has in South Carolina. And what they find is a gun, vials of blood, yeah. all kinds of medication, like all kinds, needles and glass vials, Gurley's address book and her Malaysian photo ID, a steam cleaner and black paint, you know, that you would use to cover yourself in basically. So, a lot of this is suspicious and relates to the case, but let's talk about some of the other things and how this is going to give you some insight into Dyson. Okay, I'm okay. sorry. He's just like, is he putting black paint nope. all over his face just to cover up blood? Like, oh, no. I don't know how to get this blood off. I know. Black 
paint seems like a good idea. Splat, 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 splat. Okay, sorry. So he routinely um, goes around telling people he's either a doctor or a geneticist. He is none of these things, okay? Just to be clear. Um, and he has been known to collect vials of blood from people. Like, he tells people he's a geneticist and collects vials of blood. So this is a guy that literally has a collection of vials of blood. Because it would be normal right? to do that and leave it in your um, home. He's been pulling, and he's a con artist, right? He's been yeah. pulling scams forever. He's been selling vitamin B as a cure for cancer or a youth serum to people. Like, this is just something he does. And the crazy thing is, his name isn't even Dyson Hassenkopf. His name is Armand Chavez. Ah. So all of this kind of lets you understand that he's he's a con man in yeah. every possible way. And Gurley had started to become aware of this at the end. Oh. Like, there was domestic violence, but there was also her getting to understand that this, this guy is a fraud. This man's not real. And all the women, she started to know about the women, you know, everything. Oh. So that's kind of important about, you know, when you think about why this all happened. Yeah. So after they arrest him and at his grand jury, there's this woman that they had already interviewed named Linda Henning. So she comes in and testifies. And as she's testifying, she just starts going down the conspiracy theory rabbit hole like no other, right? It's my favorite so rabbit hole. they are like, what is up with this chick? So they <laughs> look a little bit into her. And here's where things get even more interesting. So Linda and Dyson met at a class taught by a guy named David Icke, or Dave Icke. And he believes... He teaches this class. He believes that the world is run by shape-shifting reptile aliens. Oh my god, I love it! And they can only stay in their human form if they are fed blood. Oh my god, it's an episode of Supernatural. So, <laughs> Linda was... I know, it's like Supernatural We're the meets... <laughs> Supernatural meets the X-Files, right? Oh my god. So, Linda was already really involved in conspiracy theories at this point. So, when she meets Dyson, you know, and he's buying this whole thing she introduces him to her ufo fan club basically like her uh, ufo okay. club yeah um you know people have book clubs she's got a ufo she's club. got a ufo club right so even the people at the ufo club think he's weird which is hilarious to me because you know that like she they they met at this thing and so anyway me telling people he's a four thousand year old alien for real um <laughs> But oh, Linda God. falls for it. She believes it. Hook, line, and sinker. And her friends say that right after she met Dyson, she broke up with her fiancé. She stopped changing her clothes and bathing. And yeah. she just seemed really off. She didn't seem like herself. I mean, she already was probably pretty weird. But, you know, because um, she had apparently been a successful, um, not she was a model, but then she was also a successful fashion designer. And, yeah. you know, just kind of went down the conspiracy theory train. And here she is. Um, she was trying to get her friends to use his miracle treatments. She told them that he was a 4,000-year-old alien and had promised her great powers. <laughs> and the reptile aliens were going to be coming to the Earth, and particular individuals would be their local emissaries, and she was going to be the reptile queen. Wait, isn't this, like, part of Scientology, too? I think it might be, yes. Okay. And this is what a private in investigator found out for the Oxygen show Snapped. Like, this is what she was telling her friends. You know, she was going to be the reptile queen. Um, and apparently, if you get blood from someone who's been tortured or something, oh my God. Um, the alien overlords like that even more. and It's more powerful. Um, so just a like, little mindset on these people. Oh 
But at the UFO club, there's another important thing. They meet another person there named Bill Miller. Bill Miller is an avid hunter and supposed hitman. Oh, cool. Um, and when police... <laughs> Just hanging out at the UFO club. <laughs> when police ask him questions, he actually says that Dyson asked him to kill his wife, but he said he didn't do it. But the thing is, once they start looking into him, he has a hunting cabin basically right where they found the tarp with the clothes. Oh. Okay. And he also opened a safe deposit box the exact same day that Gurley went missing. Yeah. And in the safe deposit box, are they find $10,000 wrapped in aluminum foil, because obviously not? UFOs and aliens, <laughs> and $12,000 in rare, coin, rare coins. So this kind of legitimizes the whole Hitman thing, because that's really odd. Yeah. Um, okay, so now at this point, the investigators, they have no body. And this is important, and this is, cannot be overlooked. It is really hard to go to trial without a body. Right. Like, murder cases that go to trial without a body need a lot of evidence. Well, yeah. And How do you know she's been murdered if you don't have a exactly. body? Exactly. Yes. Um, so they, they're pretty sure that Dyson's the mastermind and Linda and Bill have something to do with it. But that's pretty much all they know. Okay. So they finally do get some breaks when all of the blood evidence and all that, you know, CSI stuff comes back. So the dun, tarp dun. Um, with the blood and clothes is girlies for sure. And most of the blood in the apartment is girlies. But Most. Okay. there is blood in the apartment that belongs to Linda Henning. Oh. And it's like these small spatters of blood. Um, like an artery was cut or something? Yeah. No, because she, I mean, they think it was from a fight. Like her and Gurley had a fight and somehow. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. So they also find hair and saliva from Dyson at the apartment and on the clothes. And this is significant because even though he... People are like, well, they were married, but she was hiding from him. He shouldn't right. have been in that apartment. Right. Um, so they didn't find any of his blood, but they did find that. They did find a strand of Linda's hair in the duct tape. Oh. Also. <laughs> um, and then they analyzed the steam cleaner that they found at, at Dyson's apartment, right? Because it looks the giant wet spots, right? Yeah. So in there, they find a bunch of cat hair. Well, Gurley doesn't have any pets, so but Linda's got all the cats. I know you're not surprised by that, but she's nope. got all the cats. Um, that's the first thing. And they also find weird animal fur and feathers and things. And, um, you know, Bill, avid hunter, apparently had been elk hunting at the time when Gurley was murdered. Um, it's kind of a weird thing to find, and that kind of connects him yeah. back to the case, right? So, at this point, Linda and Dyson are indicted by a grand jury, November 17th, 1999. So, really, like, two months later, basically. Um, they don't charge Bill at this time, and I'll come back to him later, but um, they think they have a pretty strong case, even without a body. Like, they went right. forward with it, which is pretty Ballsy. crazy, right? Yeah. So, besides all the physical evidence and everything else I've already told you about these crazy people... Um, they also know Linda bought a tarp not long before the murder that looks just like the one, you know, they found. Yeah. And they also found at her place two guns and a samurai sword. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and they know that Dyson bought the sword, like there's some sort of record of it. And um, it has his blood on the handle and some other blood on the blade that they can't identify. Like it's been, you know. It's a reptile, obviously. From right. Space. It's an alien overlord. <laughs> so... <laughs> Or I mean a reptile alien overlord. Let me get it right. <laughs> so at this point, everyone is really surprised because Dyson pleads guilty to avoid the death penalty. He gets sentenced uh -huh. to 60 years and he just says, you know what? No, I'm, I 
totally did this. She deserved to die. You can look up, you can actually listen to the audio of his testimony. It's really just so creepy. He's so creepy. So why did she deserve to die? Like, what was his reason for that? He never says. I mean, it could be any number of things. People have speculated that Dimitri, you know, like, because she wanted Dimitri. Um, Um, I don't know. Conspiracy theory angle. Yeah. Um, a lot of people just think, you know, he was an abuser and he didn't like that crazy. she he didn't yeah. like that she said no. Like that she was like, No, I'm not doing this. And charges were coming against him, you know. Yeah. So anyway, eventually, and it takes a while because of appeals and lawyers and anything, everything and everything. Anything and everything. Wow. Oof. Linda goes to trial. And at this point, the crazy thing that happens is that Dyson testifies for her defense, not the prosecution. So he okay. says, and this is his story, and he's repeated this story, that Bill is the killer, and he was the one that was supposed to go clean up the crime scene. So when he went to go clean up the crime scene, he just had this idea that if he put other blood with Gurley's blood and then covered it in bleach, it would corrupt all the blood. So he grabs one of his random vials of blood he has hanging out, right? Just grabs Uh his vial of blood, puts it in his pocket, and it breaks. And the only other vial of blood that he happens to have around is Linda's. So when he goes, the spattering of blood is him throwing Linda's blood around. Obviously, the prosecution thinks that there was an altercation. You know, the samurai sword, whatever. She might have got, you know, nicked, blood, whatever. So... Um, and as crazy as it sounds, thankfully nobody else believed it either, and Linda does avoid the death penalty, but she is convicted of 73 years. Yeah, she's uh, 73 years in prison. Uh, Bill does eventually get charged, like, for conspiracy or something, I can't remember exactly, and, um, he doesn't... So this time Dyson testifies on behalf of the prosecution, but he's difficult, he's ridiculous on the stand, and nobody really takes him seriously. Um, worst witness you could probably have as a DA, like I'm guessing. So, um, basically Bill gets time served and, uh, probation and that's it. They just never really had enough physical evidence to put him at the scene. Right. Because both Gurley and Linda, there was evidence that said they were in that apartment. And then if they were, you know, friends, they probably knew where his cabin was. Exactly. So, So, I mean, or he said they could use it or whatever, right? right? You know, UFO club, secret handshake, you know, goes a long way. (laughs) The Um, the UFO's tight. So a quick mom follow-up. You asked about this. Oh, yeah. um, They did find Dimitri's mom. All right. So one of Dyson's many women, uh, she was in Canada, a Japanese woman that lived in Canada, and she gave birth to their son. And Dyson asked her when he was one month old to come to Mexico um, because he had looked, he had talked to their doctors and their son had like a genetic um, anomaly illness or something. And Dyson was going to take him for treatment. So as far as this woman knew, like she probably thought her son was dead this whole time. Oh my God. Now he did get adopted by a great family and nobody really knows anything about him. And that's a good thing. Like let this poor kid live a life. Um, And at this point, you know, he didn't go back with his mom and, she had already, you know, had other kids and was living a different life. And I, I think it would have probably been more traumatic for him to, to go right. back at this point. But she did miss him and, um, you know, was conned, like everyone else, by Dyson, you know, saying yeah. that, you know, this was going on. So, um, I mean, it, it's good that they found 
you know, who she was and could at least tell her what happened. Yeah. So she knew what happened to her oh son. My God. But, you know, the, the long and short of it is this case boils down to a woman who is living in fear. She had called the FBI asking for protection, you oh know, which God. the FBI was like, no, whatever. Right. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, we don't do that. She was, I mean, she was taking like karate and self-defense classes. Like she was doing all of these things because she knew that this man was not sane. And as crazy yeah. as this case is, she's another case of like domestic violence, you know, and she's a strength. Like, that was ignored. Yeah. She's not in, she's not from this country. She hadn't been here this long, like that long. Didn't know. Did um, he only target like Asian women who. I don't know specifically. I mean, Linda oh. wasn't. So like, I don't know. I think that just oh, okay. happens to be some of them, but I okay. definitely think he definitely targeted people from other countries because he yeah. could you know, fool them yeah, more easily. Like, oh, wow. Yeah, that's so sad. So. Wow. Anyway, that is the story of Girly Chu Hassenkoft. Poor woman. Okay, so for my story, um, just a quick setup. Um, this is actually the story that kind of started this podcast to begin with because, um, I know about it from my mother and my aunts, and it was actually my cousin, cousin Emmy and I, we started talking about it and we thought it'd be really cool to do a podcast and talk about it. Um, that didn't work out that way, but it's great because, you know, now I have Nicole and it's super fucking Yay. awesome. But uh, Thanks, Emmy. Yeah, Emmy, we still love you. Yeah. Um, so this is, uh, I'm titling it, the infamous, not so known, WVU co-ed murders and at the end I'll explain the weird possible like family connection I don't know how else to describe that but it, it's not like my family was involved it was just that's how you heard about it yeah and it took it took place like really close to my where my mother and my aunts lived like they they found these girls bodies literally right down the road from them so it was weird okay anyway so in the winter of 1970, in the middle of the Appalachian Mountains, do you say Appalachian or Appalachian? I say Appalachian, but... Me too. I, you know, but I... I always hear people calling it Apple, Appalachian. Yeah, I... I've lived here my whole life and I've never once said that. And we live in these mountains. <laughs> so I'm like, a flatlander, so I don't count. You do totally count. <laughs> well, you live here now. I do, I do. <laughs> okay. So it was in the middle of the Appalachian Mountains in Morgantown, West Virginia, which is a small mountain town that had its own university, and, but it was also by no means without crime. And when I say like it's like right in the middle, like um, my uncle still lives there. He's a retired Morgantown police officer, and his house is on these tight, winding roads that you're just, like, right up against bedrock, basically. Right. And he has a huge, like, rock formation in his backyard because it's right in, like, anyway. Okay. And Morgantown's a pretty happening place these days, so. Is it? Yeah, that's what I hear. Oh, I don't know. I haven't been there in a really, really <laughs> long time, so I have no idea. West Virginia's making a comeback. What up, West Virginia? Okay, so... So in the years prior to the event that I'm going to cover, uh, this small area had been the center for many violent crimes and even 
there was even an attempted assassination of a local up-and-coming prosecutor in the same month that we're going to discuss in January of 1970. Wow. Yeah. I keep trying to adjust my mic because I'm looking at my audio and it looks like I'm not even talking. Like, that's so funny. <laughs> Maybe I'm not. Who knows? Okay. So, on January 18th, 1970, two WVU students named Merid uh, Malaric and Karen Farrell go missing. So the last time the girls were seen was on that night and uh, in the Metropolitan Theater, which is downtown Morgantown. Um, they had met up with two acquaintances named Skip and Itzy, and they were watching the movie Oliver. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to leave that just there. waiting for something way more exciting. <laughs> Oh, but I'm sure, like, in the 70s, you get, like, one movie per, like, movie theater, and anyway, yeah. okay, probably was all they had. So anyway, according to Skip and Itzy, um, after the movie, they uh, kind of parted ways. Um, the girls, they say, got into a light-colored sedan, um, possibly a Chevy, and the boys had decided to take uh, transportation. But it's, I'm also going to stop and note that at this time in Morgantown, um, hitchhiking was a huge part of the community, was extremely common because the public transportation was very, 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 very limited. And um, my own mother and my aunts um, have relayed to me several stories about them hitchhiking from where they lived to downtown and back and forth because it's all you could do. I think hitchhiking was just more prevalent in that time and overall. My dad has over like a thousand hitchhiking stories. So, and like, yeah. For a college town, what the fuck? Yeah. yeah so, okay. Um, so, Skip said he watched the girls get into this car, and then he noted that it was odd because as the girls drove by them, they looked dead ahead, and they didn't make eye contact or even attempt to wave to Skip and Itzy um, mm. as they drove by. And this was the last time the girls were seen yeah, alive. very suspicious. So, that night at 1.15 a.m., the girls were reported missing as their curfew for their dormitory was midnight, and it was not like them to be late. So the first assumption was that the girls had run off and didn't want to be found, you know, because that's what college girls do. It's always the college assumption <laughs> that they have run off. Like, Teenagers, like early teens, like, oh, always. That's always, always what it is. But Merritt had written a letter a few days before, and in that letter there was absolutely no indication that she wanted to run away and or disappear, like nothing like that. So um, after the girls were reported missing, um, it was actually the students at WVU who pushed for this investigation to happen because the police honestly pegged these girls as runaways and they, they just, they, right. they weren't into it. They yeah. really didn't give a shit. So, um, after a ton of protests and a lot of arguing and, um, a lot of higher ups kind of got involved, um, eventually, uh, the FBI and like the state police and all of these people start to get involved. So on March 24th, the governor ordered that the state police, like I said, get involved. Right. And by, at this point, two months have gone by. Which is way too long. Way too long. And this is such a common thread in missing 
cases where they don't investigate, where they think it's something. This is so common. So, but it turns out, so a lot of stuff comes to light after this case, quote unquote, closes. uh, We'll get into that, too. Okay, cool. But um, apparently, Merid, her purse had been found. Oh. So, um, a young boy who was looking for pop bottles, you know, cash in, right, back right. then, they were like five cents, um, noticed a purse, and he gave it to the police. And the police uh, noted that there was a receipt and 13 cents, and this purse was found on March 1st and was sitting on a desk in the police station and simply had just been ignored. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's crazy. There's horrible, horrible mishandling of this case the entire Especially, I mean, it was time. reported. It's not like it wasn't reported at yeah. all. So, um, eventually, so, like, eventually somebody does get involved with the case who is taking this very, very seriously. Like, he's a, like, he's a detective, and he kind of walks into the police station, notices the purse, and they, he's like, what is this? And the police are like, oh, well, it's, it's that one of those runaways purse. And completely freaks out, because it's been sitting there for almost a month, and nobody did anything about it. So... From here, what happened is that helicopters were dispatched to search the area where the purse had been found, but this is in the middle of nowhere. Right. It is a heavily wooded area and made the search very, very difficult by air. But then on April 9th, so we're like January, February, March, April, three months out, um, the, re- the police received a letter. See, letters in my stories <laughs> are just like a thing now. Man, if Julie has a story about a letter... <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do. I, like, I don't know. Like, I'm not even doing it on purpose. It's just happening. Okay. They received a letter from Cumberland, Maryland, which is about 70-ish miles from Morgantown. I was going to say that's not too far. So I'm going to attempt to do a British accent for this one. That I will explain why. Okay. <laughs> okay. I'm so excited. <laughs> Gentlemen. I, I can't do a British accent all of a sudden. <laughs> like, I like have stage fright. I can't do it. But normally, I can talk British. It's the only fucking accent I can do. Okay. I have some information on the whereabouts of the bodies of the two missing West Virginia University co-eds, Marid Malaric and Karen Farrell. Follow the directions very carefully to the nth degree, and you cannot fail to find them. Proceed 25 miles directly south from the southern line of Morgantown. This will bring you to a wooded forest land. Enter into the forest exactly one mile. There are the bodies. 25 plus 1 equals 26 miles total. (laughs) Will reveal myself when the bodies are located. Sincerely, Triangle. So, I'm so, so sorry. So Triangle didn't think that they could do that basic uh, math no, there? No, I don't think so. 25 plus 1 And is I'm so 26. sorry to any, like, you know, like, British, English people who may be listening to this. Like, just, I suck at accents, so. We're having fun. It's okay. Just forgive me. Okay. Oh, Triangle. <laughs> yeah, and then it's just Triangle. Okay, so the police follow these instructions, and they really, they don't find anything. Um, eventually... Uh, 200 plus state troopers uh, and the National Guard start searching a 10 mile radius from where the purse was originally found. And from these searches, they start to find little bits of things that belong to the girls and they're just like scattered throughout the area, like medication bottles, scarves, and at one point even their identifications were found. Oh, wow. So during the, the time of these searches, police received a second letter in the same handwriting signed with the same triangle. 
And the first letter basically repeats the first, noting the directions, but this one adds a sense of urgency and says, Fanning out, you will locate the bodies of the girls covered over with brush. Look carefully. The animals are now on the move. Mm. Because we're in the mountains. The animals have been on the move since this started, so... Well, in the mountains, everything's hibernated because January, oh, it's frozen, there's... Yeah, that's true. You're right, you're right. things are warming up, things yeah, are thawing. That makes sense. Animals are hungry, yeah. you know, and they're going to go... They're going to sniff out, you know, oh, yeah. some For dead, real. possible, like, dead bodies. Yeah. Not possible dead bodies, but they're, they're going to find them. Okay, so... As I already kind of mentioned throughout this entire investigation, um, the lines of communication with like the different forces and organizations that were handling this were really just non-existent. So much horrible, horrible mishandling. Um, people weren't being notified when things like of the girls had been found, um, et cetera, et cetera. So um, in the meantime, others connected to the girls also start receiving letters. Um, Merid's roommate claims that she got a letter on March 24th and stated that the letter included 12 instructions. And one of those instructions was that she was to take the lead of the investigation. This letter was never presented and could just be something that she made up. But she also, um, stated that she received phone calls from a man with a quote unquote foreign accent and stating that he knew details about the case and that it might have been connected to the bombing of the up and coming prosecutor that I mentioned at the beginning, oh, okay. which is why I mentioned it. Right. But he also said that the bodies would be found more than 30 miles apart. Um, these claims were never taken seriously and there was no hard evidence by the detectives. And as I'll tell you, it's it's not true how the bodies were found. So this person, if they actually called, doesn't know anything. So 88 days after the disappearance, the bodies of Merritt and Karen are finally found. Okay. They were 30 feet from a creek bank. They were covered in brush and stones. Badly, the one, the one girl was badly decomposed and they were both headless. Oh, wow. Okay. They had no heads. So, um, an article from April 17th, 1970, uh, discussed the findings of the girls. It says the headless bodies of the two missing West Virginia university co-eds were uncovered in a crudely construction tomb of stones and limbs six miles south of Morgantown yesterday. Both bodies had been decapitated. Prosecuting attorney Joe Larita authorized the autopsy with William Bowers. The coroner said that because the Badleys were so badly, badly de decomposed, he was not able to determine whether the girls had been shot or stabbed. So there's really, they don't know what the cause of death was. When asked if the cuts to the neck uh, were clean, he said he was not able to tell and authorities worked for four hours removing the remains. Police said they wanted step-by-step -step pictures of the operation and the bodies found, one of them, um, uh, uh, Merid, uh, was fully clothed, and the other was naked from the waist down and had been badly decomposing. That By the time the body was found, um, the pelvis was completely exposed. Like, there was right. no it was skin. All, yeah. Like, it was basically bone. They were placed one on top of the other, chest to chest, but at a slight angle with only their feet showing from underneath the makeshift tomb. Hmm. They were placed under branches, which served as the framework for limbs and stone slabs, uh, and a fallen tree covered the bodies. 
Um, State Police Captain W.F. Bowley said that if he had just been walking past the area, he wouldn't have noticed. <clears throat> they, these bodies were found because someone that was helping with the search party just wanted to sit down and have a cigarette. And he sat oh down. Oh my gosh, and that's how he found and it. And then he noticed the feet sticking out. So, wow. um, there's some discrepancy to the stories as to whether the girls were fully clothed or not. And one of the officers says that he saw clothes and that he noted that both of the girls were wearing gloves. So, we don't know. Well, and at this point, there's obviously <laughs> been so much, you know... So much time has passed. Time, decomposition, who knows what else. Right. It, yeah. So, uh, a Charleston newspaper published an article covering the, the murders, but what's odd about this article isn't the details that it covers, but the photo that they happen to publish with it. So, the photo is from the day the bodies had been found and removed from the site, and a man in jeans and a button-down shirt was standing beside the place where the girls had been left. It turns out that this man was not part of the search party, the police, or the FBI. Alrighty then. Nobody knew who he was. Okay. So it turns out that this was a WVU forestry student who was posing as a member of the National Guard, which he was not, and he also had a history of sexual offenses. Okay. That's not so, odd at all. Right. But he became a suspect, but he had an alibi. Okay. Apparently his band um, had played out of town that weekend, and he and his wife, because apparently he was married, okay. uh, stayed with a friend in that town that night. Supposedly. Supposedly. So, um, other, and again, like the hitchhiking thing comes up a lot in this, because through this, there's a lot of, like, student protests about the lack of, like, transportation and such. So other students were questioned based, um, because a man with dark hair who drove a white Tudor car, possibly an Impala, um, noted that they had the back taillights were pointed, um, which was in Skip's description of okay. the car the girls got in, um, the one student who had been offered a ride said he waved to her to get in his car via the driver's side, and when she said okay, and she went around to his side, and when she looked in, she noticed that the passenger side door had been wired shut. Oh, all right. So he's definitely up to something. Um, so her and several other female students were qu were questioned, and they were able to compile a sketch of the man, but nothing ever came of this. Okay. So we don't know who this man is. Well, and I mean, if someone it's known that girls are hitchhiking that much in this town, it makes sense that a predator would try to take advantage of that. Well, and that's another thing that comes out, is that yeah. a lot of this stuff is happening, and it's just not either being talked about or it's being swept under the rug. Excuse me. Okay, so news agencies and newspapers just started running wild with this story. Um, and like I said, the issue of hitchhiking was coming up. Um, there was lots of weird men. Um, this is important because they thought perhaps one of these men would have also picked up the co-eds. And it's here where we get our first real suspects. Okay. Sort of. <laughs> There's a huge <laughs> fucking list of like suspects. It's so confusing. So confusing. Okay. Candace Bales and Cindy Smith, who were hitchhiking, were picked up by Jean Treckler and Richard Johnson. They were taking they were taken out of town and were asked to be let out, but they were told no. Having to pee, the guys stopped and both of them got out. The guys stopped and both the girls got out. And then because the girls were frightened, they grabbed a bottle and hit one of the guys over the head and took off. 
So they found another ride, right. hitchhiked back to their dorms. <laughs> um, they reported this incident because, you know, it, it scared them that they weren't being let out and the guys were acting kind of weird. Um, so the Dominion newspaper was a big newspaper in this town and the guy who owned it was like obsessed with these murders and finding it, finding out like all the details. Okay, so they covered it a lot. A lot. So, um... Under the influence of this local newspaper, the girls filed a report against the two guys and they were arrested. But later, the girls would retract their report. Um, and then the guy, the, the two men would later sue the newspaper for defamation based off the articles that were exaggerated and the false claims they wrote within. Like, the girls eventually wow. apologized and said, no, we were just scared and we may have overreacted. Um, so, yeah, but... Uh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's weird that they wouldn't let him out. I mean, but then they stopped to quote-unquote pee. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, Right. That's super weird. Like, and, the, I mean, it's not terrible that the girls were scared and were actually reporting it. Even if it turns out to be nothing, at least, you know. Right. So the next, the next suspects were a band called Ezra, which is kind of funny. <laughs> so it, Joe Turner was in this band who would later be in the band Deep Purple. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. was going to say, okay. <laughs> I was like, I know Nicole's going to know who this is. Um, so Merritt apparently knew them, was friends with the band, and was noted um, someone who looked like her was talking to the band during, like, one of their shows. So unfortunately for the band, there was another murder surrounding them when two groupies of theirs were found stabbed to death Um and I believe this was in New Jersey. However. Was that band better than Ezra? <laughs> oh my God, that was a good one. <laughs> wow. Um, but it's believed that these girls were um, victims of Ted Bundy in some of his earlier killings. Yeah, so the band was eventually cleared of like any wrongdoing. Um, so they were let go as um, suspects. I find it on both for some fucking reason. Okay. Um, all right. All right. So less than one week after, after the discovery of the bodies, another letter from Triangle was received. Oh, I'm going to need a sip for this. Excellent. More Triangle. <laughs> Try to do this fucking British accent. Which will make sense. I'm getting to that. Okay. Uh, gentlemen. <laughs> I can't do it all of a sudden. Again, maybe it's I have microphone fright. Is that a thing? You got this. I don't know. I have delayed writing another letter and hope you would conclude more information by this time concerning the finding of the bodies. The heads can be found from the position of the bodies by striking out 10 degrees southwest for the first head in approximately 10 degrees southeast for the second, roughly one mile. You are already seven-tenths of that mile. We're really good at fucking math. <laughs> It's like, a math professor. Oh, like, I know it is. Like, Triangle. Oh, oh, just wait. Okay. They are within the mine entrance, if you can call it an entrance, considering its condition. They are buried not over one foot in depth. The ones responsible for the murders scattered some of the girls' personal effects over the general area, creating a pattern of confusion, making it difficult for you to pinpoint any exact locations. My first two letters triggered your intense search. Don't give up now. I will identify myself once your investigation is complete. Sincerely, Triangle. <laughs> Can't every time. <laughs> so, 
Um, there was a pond that was kind of near that area, which was sort of, I guess, positioned near an old mining entrance. Okay. But it is like, like kind of like right. they said, if you can call it that, because it's not really an entrance anymore. So that pond was drained because it was, like I said, the closest thing to a mine entrance that they could find. And the only thing that they found when they had finished draining of the pond was a doll head. Okay, then. They never found the girls' heads. Right. Like, they've, okay. they've never been found. So... Who, and then who knows why? I mean, or maybe somebody didn't. They just didn't tell anybody, you know? Right, like, maybe. But, I mean, they could have also just completely decomposed at this point. Or and, animals ate them. Right. Like, or, who knows where, like, uh, yeah. yeah. But it's just... Well, and removing heads is not that uncommon. <laughs> As I say that out loud, it sounds ridiculous. But yeah. it's a really, um, it's a way that you know, killers use to conceal bodies, like to conceal the identity, to conceal how they were killed. Yeah. Like if there are bullets in the head, you know, there's a lot of reasons for that. Yeah. I mean, some of it's just being, you know, I guess you kind of bring sicko, up a sicko, but some of it could just also be ways of concealing the body. Yeah. Like, so how, like, it makes me wonder how they had concrete evidence that this was Merritt and Karen. I mean, they did find some clothes and stuff, so... Yeah, and they were wearing some. And, yeah, which yeah. means that it's probably not that, but I'm just saying, yeah. like, it's not completely unheard of. Yeah. And then, again, given where... Well, assuming that the heads were near where right. the bodies were, more than likely they probably were animal food. I mean, that's a horrible way to put it, no, but... but probably. Yeah. Animal, probably yeah. not in some dude's freezer. No, not anymore, anyway. <laughs> All right, so then there was another letter. We so love many letters. letters. <laughs> Someone should write us a letter. Actually, oh Julie a letter. Just no, Julie. I don't, I don't know if I want. <laughs> no, I don't want letters like this, man. Like fuck that. Like don't. I don't want to. No. No, I take it back. Don't write Julie. A letter. I don't want to know like your deepest darkest secrets and if you murdered somebody because then. No, thank you. No, thank you. We'll okay. take nice emails though. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. So if you got stories. You know, mystery mom podcast at Gmail. Plug, plug. Okay. So this time the letter was directed at one of the girls' parents, Marin. Okay. Dear Doctor and Miss Malaric, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly because I don't actually know. I have sent three letters to the Morgantown State Police Detachment concerning your daughter Marid and Karen. The first and second letters were taken with some seriousness, which instituted a search which was successfully successful in locating the two bodies minus the two heads, which were needed for other purposes. Okay, whatever that could be. All of a sudden, the police are complaining about an error in the mileage in my previous letter. After one has driven an oval pattern for 26 miles under the weather conditions of January and under the involved circumstances... It is possible to make an 18-mile error as to the precise locations of the bodies. Again, with a fucking map. And now, wow. like, you got some geometry? Like, what? Okay. Weatherman, too. <laughs> Nevertheless, they were found south of Morgantown. Don't let the authorities convey the idea the letters had nothing to do with finding the bodies before receiving them. They had nothing to go on, and they expected me to jump up and identify myself. I did say I would identify myself when the bodies were found, but the police so far have left too many loose ends in their case. The, in, in their case, the third letter they have chosen to do nothing about states about as specifically as possible the location of the girls' heads. 
If you have not seen any of the letters, may I suggest you ask the police to see all three. I am hoping this messy situation is brought to a conclusion for all of our sakes. Sincerely, Triangle. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm just 18 miles off. Really, it's no big deal. I mean, it's fine. 18 miles, like, nothing. You gotta go on it. I got yeah, no, it and there's, and... it's snowing or wow. something. Oh, so, Triangle. And then, you know, he... he he mentions that, you know, if you haven't seen the letters, you should ask. But it was also, you know, Merritt's parents that had been lied to about not finding anything of the girls' because it was Merritt's purse that they'd found. And oh, they didn't tell the okay. All right. Yeah. So. Uh, so there's a whole, like, this is, I'm trying to keep, like, not to be super confusing because there's so many weird things that happen on this case that just... They're really just grasping at, like, nothing. Right. So one of the men working on the case, Lieutenant C.G. West, he worked tire tirelessly to match the handwriting with the signature, um, with signatures on file, because, you know, this all these letters mm -hmm. were written in hand, like, by hand, and they thought, well, maybe this person actually did, like, committed these murders. Um, he did find one note card while searching the records that he thought was a sure match. The man was Stanley Haas Jr., who had a record of sexual assault and had escaped from a PA prison while being transferred. The man then shot and killed a police officer and then would later kidnap a woman, steal her car, which unfortunately also had her infant daughter in the back. Oh my gosh. Um, later, he would uh, write a letter to the police stating where to find their bodies. Oh, that's so, horrible. It is. It's fucking awful. So this letter was sent to a crime lab in D.C. to figure out maybe if there was a match. Mm -hmm. But, but, mm, turns out the letters were not written by this man, but by a small group of people. The Psychic Science Church from Cumberland, Maryland. Um, it stated, Yeah. Um, it stated that Reverend Richard Warren Hoover, because who doesn't okay. need all of those names, um, would fall into a trance and he would channel a 19th century physician from London named Dr. Spencer, hence the British accent. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, it wow. was a clue. So through these channeling, the doctor told them the whereabouts of the co-eds and these sessions were recorded um, and written down by um, the niece of one of the members. Um... The channel doctor stated that the killers were two men, a white male with blue eyes and blonde hair, and also a black man who was 5'7", from West Virginia, who were a part of a satanic group, and the girls were killed as part of their ritual. Okay. Yeah. So these members and the letters uh, were cleared of any involvement in the crime, um, and they were also refused any reward money that was being offered because they didn't well, give them any credit really? for the finding of the bodies. That is the most. That's that is all just so crazy. I mean, it, it's weird. How would they know? How would they know? Even though like the directions were a little wonky, like yeah, uh, off, off. But yeah, it is. It is weird. It is weird. But. It's know. weird. All right, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna go through the fucking long ass list of suspects, people who were thought to possibly have um, committed these crimes, and I just want to point out here that you know, trigger warning. Um, there, a lot of these individuals are incredibly violent people who did some really awful things. So um, if you don't want to listen to all of those details, and I didn't go into like real graphic detail because I didn't feel that that was necessary, but, 
Um, just so you know, so if you don't want to hear that, uh, skip ahead. Okay, so one of the first people who came up as being, you know, suspicious was Elias Const Constanius, uh, who was Merrid's dentist. Okay. So when her first her purse was found, there was a receipt for dental services by this doctor. Merrid's sister decided to speak to the dentist herself, which um, he did speak with her at length. Um, and for some reason, the doctor wrote an article to a local newspaper, and what it said um, has been kind of lost to time, but an article published later stared, stated that Merritt had had incomplete dental work, and she would have been in significant pain if not treated, thinking, you know, well, maybe she's still alive, I guess. I'm not sure. Another thing the doctor did was he called Merritt the day that the girls disappeared, which is kind of viewed as kind of suspicious. Okay. Um, you know, kind of like feigning ignorance or something. But in the early 60s, Dr. Constantus had been accused of molesting a woman while she was getting dental work done by him. Oh, wow. And nothing had come of this. And rumor has it that he had been picking up female hitchhikers in a white Cadillac. Okay. Which has the pointy... Right. It's got like, the... Yeah. Yeah. So, um, um, but again, nothing ever came of it. Right. So, uh, then there's John Gerald Schaefer. He was a, uh, deputy Martin County, Florida deputy. <laughs> he, and he was convicted of, this fucking story is crazy. He was convicted of kidnapping two teenage girls in his police car, tying them to a tree by the neck, like, mm -hmm. and left them there hanging. And he, he, I guess he had to take a, like, he got called cause he was like on duty, but one of the girls got free and they, and they ran for help. Um, it turns out that this guy would be a serial killer who had been kidnapping pairs of girls and decapitating them. Wow. But he it, seems like a pretty likely he was suspect. A fucking cop, yeah. But he was never convicted. So, um, Edward Lee Fielder, uh, he murdered a cab driver in 68 as well as a hotel manager. And while on trial, confessed he had committed the murders. So he said that he had kidnapped them and robbed them. He told he told that he told him and a friend drove a black car and picked up the two girls, which we know was not correct. He claimed that he buried the heads um, in a shed by a Greyhound station, which were not there. They checked, um, and he couldn't name the friend who he claimed helped him. And since the police police didn't believe him, this made him mad, and he refused to cooperate also, or discuss it. Also, how much further. could you really steal from two college students who just went to the movies? It's probably like all the money they had in the yeah, whole but, world at that. They had, but 13 cents was found in Merritt's purse. So right. She wasn't yeah. robbed. So that's Even all still, like, completely fabricated. Like not. These are college students in the 70s. They had yeah, no money. They didn't, no. John Kroll, who was from Cumberland, Maryland, home of our famous letter writers. Right. Um, he picked up a 15-year-old girl and stabbed her with a pen knife in what looked like an attempt to decapitate her. It didn't work. She survived. Um, he had a previous history of sexually assaulting young girls and Kroll states that he was in Morgantown on January 18th at a funeral. He refused to take a polygraph test, um, and then an undercover cop posed as one of his cellmates trying to get a confession, but was told he was simply just crazy and that he didn't think that he had committed these murders. And now he is currently in jail for the sexual assault of a nine-year-old girl. All right. Eddie Slaughter. Uh, April 5th, looking in the area where Merritt's purse was found, um, it was found that Slaughter lived with a couple 
who lived in the area where they found this purse. Gotcha. Um, he also, turns out, worked in the dorms. Oh, so there's a connection to WVU. Yep. And then a report had come from a college girl who said that while she was waiting uh, for a ride, that Slaughter pulled up and offered her a ride, which she declined. He offered to stay with her, and she could sit in his car to get warmed. This she agreed to. But she said he had to sit in the passenger seat, and she would sit in the driver's seat. While in the car, he he started commenting on her fur coat and saying that he liked to rub furry things. So both Merritt and Karen had been wearing items with fur on them. One had a jacket and one had Mm. boots. um, And were some of the items that were never actually found. Oh, okay. And then it was reported on April 4th before the bodies. Yeah, this was reported on April 4th before the bodies had been found that this interaction had happened. Um, On January 18th and 19th, he was not at work. And a sample of his handwriting was taken and noted that it wasn't a match to the letters. This was before. Right, before they knew who that was. Um, And he was added to the pile of suspects who was neither cleared nor convicted. Okay. He seems like a very likely suspect. Right. And then Alan R. Estep III, uh, who was a student, uh, prepared an outline of... Heard an outline of cult dealings with decapitations. Um, apparently, he had stolen a machete from his roommates. Um, he had been hospitalized the day before the bodies were found. He had been in and out of hospitals for acute illnesses. He tried to kill his wife. He had written a story about the decapitation of two females in the fall, um, although this story was never found. And he was a bouncer at a club where the co-eds frequented and where the band Ezra had played. Again, Mm. handwriting samples were taken and a profile was done. He didn't have a solid alibi and was too nervous to do a polygraph. Um, He was scheduled to come back and he never did. Okay. William Bernard Hacker. On Christmas Eve in 1970, he was arrested because he had murdered a man and decapitated him. Aside from the decapitation... Um, the body of his victim was found in a makeshift grave, much like the one that the girls had been found in. Um, Hacker killed this man because he was having an affair with his wife. He had also previously been arrested for killing his girlfriend and a man that she was talking to. Um, he previously worked at the mine where the bodies of Merritt and Karen were found. And while in jail in 1970, he said that maybe he did have something to do with the co-ed murders and that he would only talk to a reporter with the town paper. The police denied this request and he said, okay, and never spoke of it again. Yeah, but his murders were clearly motivated for personal reasons. Right, You know, this is, this is not that. And then there is Eugene Paul Clausen. So, Eugene Paul Clausen, while in jail in New Jersey for the sexual assault of two young teenagers, he confessed to murdering the co-eds. Apparently, he confessed this because while in jail, he states that he'd been having nightmares and stated that the murders were just kind of hanging on his conscience. In 1974, he recorded a confession that was 73 pages long. Wow. And he stated that he took the girls by gunpoint drove them to a secluded location where he handcuffed one and states that he raped the other while in the back seat, then switched, forced the girls to perform sexual acts on each other, and he did this a couple times. Um, He states afterwards he made them redress and then shot both of the girls in the head, then cut off their heads with a machete that he had taken from his brother. 
He then put the girls in the grave that they were found in and took the heads and threw them into a ravine along with a gun in a place near Point Marion, Pennsylvania, which is his hometown. He had given the police instructions as to where to find the heads and the police searched this ravine for months and only found a handful of human hair. The police thought it was the hair from a local hairdresser that supposedly cut her own family's hair, but she says that it wasn't hers. Analysis of the hair was inconclusive. They know that it was human hair, that it was from two different sources, and they were similar to the hair found in the pocketbook and clothing belonging to the victims. Clawson stated that he took a necklace and a ring from the girls, which, by the way, were never found and were known to be worn by the girls. Okay, so it's him. Well, well, so there are things about his confession that make people who are paying attention kind of question it, which okay. by the way, he, he was convicted of this crime because it was the easiest thing to do. And I think Great. they just wanted to fucking Closure close it. and everything yeah. else. So first are his genetics. Clausen was born with an extra X chromosome, also known as Klinefelter syndrome. Uh-huh. So men with this syndrome suffer from low testosterone, reduced muscle mass, small testes, and they produce little to no sperm. He would have needed hormonal supplements to actually act out all of the things that he confessed to, which he didn't start until after the murders. So he was not on any sort of hormonal supplement okay. when this happened. Um, his claims of sexual abuse, um, the first body was inconclusive due to the degree of decomposition, um, and the second body, which was, uh, Merid's, showed, uh, no signs of sexual abuse. Okay. Uh, but he knew the car was light-colored and that he had stolen it, and according to police reports, only one car had been reported stolen on the day in that area that he reported stealing it from. But then there's also the time frame. So, Clawson worked in Philly. Okay. He said he left work at 2.21 p.m. Um, between 11, 10 and 11 p.m., he would have had to have picked up the co-eds. Part of his timeline was that he hitchhiked, mind you, with a rope and a machete, because he borrowed it from his brother. He then stole a car in Pittsburgh and then drove to Morgantown, which, yeah, no. when reenacted, the drive between Pittsburgh and Morgantown took between five and six hours, not counting the time it took him to hitchhike, and not counting that, you know, winter roads, there were many roads that were like one way. So, um, under hypnosis, he stated that the car, the car was his and he sold it because it was covered in too much blood. He said the jewelry he stole, he either gave to his supposed girlfriend or he hid it. Um, he didn't know who he sold the stuff to, just like the car, uh, just John with no name. So nothing with his story matches up and he's constantly contradicting what right well, whenever they change their stories you know that you know there's Something's generally right. something up so in may clausen recanted his confession and he stated that he made the story up after reading about the girls's case in detective magazine mm. and that his two cellmates two cellmates okay helped him fabricate the story interesting um and there's several variations as to the reasons why he even made up the story um but he was convicted anyway Um, he even stood a second trial and was still found guilty. Um, he eventually died in jail while still proclaiming his innocence. Interesting. So later there were other conversations and lead investigators who came out after this case closed that not only did they not believe that Clausen wasn't the killer, 
but also that the case was horribly mishandled and that there was higher government level of influence interfering. To note, the governor at the time, Arch Moore Jr., was convicted in 1990 for widespread corruption charges. All right. He was an excellent governor. And then there are a few people who have been involved with the mystery of this crime and feel that they know who the killer actually is and that he was a fellow student at WVU with the girls. Regardless, it's been 51 years since the girls were last seen, and to this day, the heads of these girls have never been found. Crazy. And there were some other suspects in that list that definitely could... Oh my god, yeah. Because they... um, you know, got rid of a bunch of them because of the handwriting, which we, turns out, is, you know, the Stupid. crazy church trance right. guy. So, I mean, right. you know, that should have, like, somebody should have went back and looked into all of those. Right, and why, and this goes back to just how horribly yes, mishandled, mishandled this whole case was. So, um, my family's connection to this. All right. So, I knew about this story growing up because my Aunt Louise, a.k.a. Wheezy, um, she, uh, she's just, I don't know, she tells me everything because, <laughs> I don't know, she's just cool like that. She's the cool aunt. But anyway, she told me this story. She's like, oh, yeah, when we were kids, you know, they found two schoolgirls, like, on an embankment, and they were missing their heads, and we had to walk by there, like, going to school. I was like, shut up. <laughs> so this is how I first heard about this case. And then the next story that she told me is... I believe it was her and my mother um, were walking down, like, hitchhiking to town. Mm -hmm. And they found a bag of, like, women's underwear. Like, just women's belongings of some sort. Like, they were, like, undergarments. wow. And this was at the time that the girls were missing. Like, they had not found their bodies. They knew the girls were missing. And everybody was aware that, like, random shit of theirs was being found, like, basically, like, up and Mm -hmm. down this area. So... But they didn't think to do anything about it. Like, they were just sure, dumb kids yeah. at the time. So what they ended up doing is uh, there was a neighbor lady who, I guess, kind of, you know, harped on them a lot and got on their nerves. So they thought it would be, like, a funny, quote-unquote, joke. So they shoved it in her mailbox and oh ran gosh. off. So potentially, this could have been, like, the Evidence, girls' stuff. Yeah. Because to the... I mean, Karen, her whole pelvis was exposed. She wasn't wearing anything. Right, right. So... How do we know that they didn't, like, how do we know what they were wearing underneath everything? So, sure. anyway, so that was my weird family connection and how I know about this story. That is so crazy. When I was looking up stuff for this story, there's there's really not anything. Like, I found one Reddit post and then Appalachian Mysteria, which is a podcast that you can find on Spotify, they go into depth. In, about this story the whole case it's like a nine ten part episode they even go further into like there was a weird um like I don't know if it was copper or tin plate that was found that they mm-hmm. kind of went into the whole satanic panic like this was a right satanic right ritual. right and they actually decipher it and they figure out what it was and um which is kind of interesting. It, it turns out that it has literally nothing to do with the girls' murder. It was just something that they happened to find. Generally, satanic panic has nothing to do with any murders. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's it. That's, that is... The that is an amazing story. WVU and it's crazy that there murders. isn't more out there about it. Because, you know, co-ed murders is definitely the kind of thing that gets covered pretty yeah, you know, and like, readily. And then the way that they were, like, but, buried together was weird. Like, they were, one was laying on top yeah. of the other. But I like, bet the government 
um, corruption that was involved and the lack of, right. you know, the t- terrible handling probably has a lot to do with how it got, right. you know, buried. Yeah. And then I feel bad for like this Clausen guy because I don't think that he did it. Like there's no way he could have been there. And it, what I'm curious is to his uh, cellmates. Because right. They How did they against, know? Well, yeah. they testified against him too, and it was actually those two who came forward and was like, "Yeah, yeah, this guy, he's he's telling us oh, this stuff." Oh, yeah. So that's totally suspicious too. And even then, if it wasn't them, maybe they actually know or knew well, someone who did it. According to Mr. Triangle, there, right? It was two men. So, right, right. Why don't you we know? look into that? Triangle in his trance. was amazing too like that was oh. so good i love the reptile it was a people. good episode i really enjoyed this yeah. it was a lot of fun and i've been waiting to hear this story we've been talking about this for yeah. a while so it was, this this is a story that birthed the podcast essentially um so anyway that's it have a good uh week everyone and happy cheers of yeah happy fourth of july and then don't forget to follow us on spotify if you use spotify mm-hmm. rate us and follow us on apple podcast or google podcast uh, tell your friends. You yeah. can follow us on Facebook, Instagram at 4M Podcast. And next week, I actually have a first listener story that we can read. Oh, that's exciting! I'm about. Very so, exciting. Um, yeah. So next week we have our first listener story. So if you have any that you would like to be have read on the air, whether it's a true crime in your area that you know about mom stories or maybe you just have like fun ghost stories we want them all so email yes. us at mystery mom podcast at gmail.com speaking of mom stories fyi everybody my eldest broke his fucking arm on sunday yes he did and currently we need to go feed them because yeah. they are everybody's angry yeah. circling us basically we, like vultures you we, know we need to go be moms now yeah time to be moms anyway thanks for listening and do all those things please and thank you bye bye your mom loves you amazing too like that was oh. so good i love the reptile it was a people. good episode i really enjoyed this yeah. it was a lot of fun and i've been waiting to hear this story we've been talking about this for yeah. a while so it was, this, this is the story that birthed the podcast essentially um so anyway that's it have a good uh week everyone and happy cheers of yeah happy fourth of july and then don't forget to follow us on spotify if you use spotify mm-hmm. rate us and follow us on apple podcast or google podcast uh, tell your friends. Yeah. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 4M Podcast. And next week, I actually have a first listener story that we can read. Oh, that's exciting. I'm excited about. Very so, exciting. Um, yeah, so next week, we have our first listener story. So if you have any that you would like to be, have read on the air, whether it's a true crime in your area that you know about, mom stories or maybe you just have like fun ghost stories we want them all so email us at mysterymompodcast at gmail.com speaking of mom stories fyi everybody my eldest broke his fucking arm on sunday yes he did and currently we need to go feed them because they are ravenously yeah. circling us basically we, like vultures you we, know we need to go be moms now yeah time to be moms anyway thanks for listening and do all those things please and thank you bye bye your mom loves you